TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. HBR presents. Hi, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here with Felix and me here. Hey, guys. Hey. hey. So I have a question for both of you. How many people have asked you whether Mihir is saying, hey, it's me here, or hey, it's Mihir? (laughs) (laughs) An endless number. So, Mihir, you need to clarify. You know you're digging up wounds from my youth (laughs) of how I was mocked. So I was thinking of taping a new promo where I said, hey, it's not me here, it's young me here. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into this week, we have to say something about this email we've been getting. You mean listeners' emails? Yes. Yeah. It's amazing. So we've mentioned this before, but every week there's more and more email on every topic we discuss. And it's... It's incredible in its depth. I mean, just take the one we got about this carbon engineering story. It's like a science education in one email. It is. And it made me want to dig into it even more. So you feel like you're tapping into this incredible wealth of knowledge, which is, it's fantastic. It's such a delightful mix of these really in-depth, thoughtful comments about the content mixed with these quick little jabs about British Baking Show. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Always on my side, by the way. So just a huge thank you. One other thing which I don't know if we've ever mentioned is we have a redesigned website, which actually has a lot of resources for listeners. It's called harvardafterhours.com, where we actually have cataloged our picks. And you can obviously listen to episodes. And maybe we should figure out a way to enable them to comment and discuss so we can have the conversation that Felix is talking about, you know, in a more thorough way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It would be great to have some mechanism to share some of these emails with people. So we'll think about that. As for this week, Mihir, you came in with such an interesting topic. Well, I kind of want to talk about airports. (laughs) And in particular, you know, I was walking maybe three quarters of a mile in JFK, and I was thinking to myself, um, how much airports have changed in the last 20 years? And so I thought we could talk about airports. Okay. And then this was also the week that Larry Page and Sergey Brin 
announced they were stepping down from their operating roles at Google. So I thought we should talk about what that means for Google and Alphabet. Great. Okay, Mihir. Yeah, so as I mentioned, we all probably spend way too much time in airports, and a lot of our listeners do. And it just struck me that in the last 20 years, airports have just totally been transformed. And yet, it feels like there's so much more to do with airports. (laughs) And so I wanted to get your sense of, first off, what you think of being some of the most important changes to airports in the last 20 years, but then also, where do you think the real pain points are where we can make things better at airports? So one of the changes that I really like about airports is the rise of biometrics. So I had a recent experience at JFK and at Miami where literally you still have to stop a little bit and stare at a camera, but it's essentially seamless. No document, no anything. It's just facial recognition and then you're done. Wait, in Miami they have this too now? In Miami and at JFK. So you stand in front of the kiosk, but instead of you inputting any sort of data... It takes a picture, it recognizes who you are, and then you're done. In particular, usually it's this tricky balance between privacy rights and how should you think about being recognized. But in the airport, of course, the whole point is that you're recognized. And so I thought that was really very good. Fantastic. What do you say, Youngmi? What do you think has been really impressive at airports? The one I was going to highlight is retail. Yeah. Yeah. I think airports have just become so much more aware of how valuable the real estate is, not just because of the quantity of foot traffic that flows through an airport, but because of the quality of that foot traffic. So on the quantity side, foot traffic is falling everywhere else, every shopping center, every mall. A good example is Black Friday. If you went to the store on Black Friday, the foot traffic is nothing like it was 10 years ago. Yeah. The one place where foot traffic is consistently high is in airports. And then the quality of that foot traffic, a significant segment of those people moving through airports have money to spend. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they call it that golden hour. And it starts the minute you get through security yeah. up until the minute you begin the boarding process. The idea that let's try to monetize that hour as much as we possibly can. And the way to monetize it is either through volume or through price. And so you see high volume things like Starbucks, but then you also see so much luxury retail, you know, where you can get the price. That to me is very interesting. I think it's both great on the product side, but it's also on food and on services, right? So food retail has had this explosion in airports where the variety of kinds of foods, the experience of the foods has just been transformed. I think the only casualty of it is that I think it's actually taken up a lot of space, which had historically been used for mobility. So one of the things that I've noticed is there's now restaurants occupying middle parts of terminals, and they've taken the place of walking escalators. And airports have gotten a lot bigger. So the mobility issues, I think, are actually non-trivial. So I love everything that's happening at airports. But one of the consequences, young me, of this explosion in retail is, as you said, the real estate's valuable. And the trade-offs are a little stark. So now you have terminals where you're walking 
a mile. <laughs> well, it feels very deliberate, though, right? Because yeah. they want you to have to walk past all the retail, yeah. all the restaurants before you get to the terminal. So it's like putting the milk at the very back of the supermarket. It's, you know, putting your gate at the very back and forcing you to walk through all of that stuff. Yeah, I think it's deliberate, but it does have a consequence. As I said, I was at, at Terminal 4 in JFK, and it's three quarters of a mile from the place I got off my gate to an exit. And it seems a little extreme. One of the things that I find most puzzling about the retail experience is in a world where basically it's very hard to get people into stores. So now you have this one-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get me into a store. And I would think you do everything to provide experiences, yes. to do everything that you cannot easily do online. Exactly. And then you see both the kinds of products that are being sold, but also the way they're sold, the way these stores are, feels so 1998. I agree. Even if you think about that duty-free store, what we sell is all the stuff where quality can be known in advance and where, even worse, I know, I don't have to buy now because at my destination airport they will force me to walk through another set of stores <laughs> yeah. and the they exact have exactly same the same products. It is really fascinating that they don't seem to have woken up to the number one problem with buying something when you're in an airport, which is you're about to get on a plane and the last thing yeah. you want to do <laughs> is lug something on that plane. And yeah. So even when they have it in <laughs> <Exactly>. the bags... <laughs> And they make you take yes. it on the plane, yes. and then you see that same product when you leave again. Like, why couldn't I pick it up when I leave? It does reinforce <laughs> how slow legacy retail is to adapt. Yeah. And so you see all of these retailers crowding into airports now with the same old model that yeah. they right. used on Main Street. It's a refuge for old retail. It really is. Right. So you see luxury brands, for example, just doubling, tripling down on airport space because it's such a prime opportunity for them. But it is interesting to imagine, and I don't think this is very far-fetched, if Amazon were to begin to invade an airport and right. just begin to take over that space, how completely different it would be mm -hmm, and how the mm -hmm. checkout would be different and how you could just pay with your Amazon account and things would get delivered to your home. Yeah. yeah, And I think it's true. You see that same pattern of replication like one of my favorite examples is when you study to be an architect, you probably learn what the size of a restroom is. And then they replicate <laughs> that size of the restroom. And don't most people have some sort of luggage? You know, that feeling where you open the door, you push the luggage in, and then there's no real way for you to right. climb over the luggage. And mm -hmm. it's hilarious. I, it's the, unbelievable <laughs> that there's not a prototype for what the perfect airport How that works. bathroom stall should yes. be. To accommodate people with luggage. Yes. So let's put you in charge of the renovation at LaGuardia. What do you want to see more of? What is it that you want to see, aside from bathroom redesign, Felix, which I'm all for? <laughs> in my experience, I think the worst pain point at airports is the connection between the airport and wherever you happen to want to go in the city. What it takes for you to figure out if you take an Uber, right. if you want to take public transportation, how do you have to navigate? And 
in the U.S. in particular, it's just completely confusing and a huge waste of time. If I was in charge, that's the thing that I would think most about. And, you know, Felix, a very low-tech version of that is I've been thinking about signage in airports. Yes. Some of it is so terrible. Yes. I mean, it is just outrageously yes. bad. My favorite example of that is how you land, and you often cannot find out which terminal you're in. Yes. It's so <laughs> true. So you have to ask. Yeah. Like, how is that? Yeah, excuse me, where am I? What terminal am I in? So young me. Tell me what you would love to do to revolutionize airports. While you were talking, I made a list. <laughs> okay. Number one, the low-hanging fruit is to get rid of all of these annoyances, some of which Felix mentioned. But, for example, the way we queue to board. Oh. I mean, it's just stupid. <laughs> Another example of an annoyance is security lines. When you're waiting yes. to get through security, yeah. I mean, they're just... So many things you could do in that yeah. line. But we did make some progress now. The tables where you move your luggage are sometimes the same height. So you don't actually have to <laughs> lift. That was a big innovation. Your exactly. Every three and a half feet. <laughs> so true. <laughs> okay. The second thing on my list is anything that's high volume. We have to make the transactions easier. And so I'm talking if you're buying coffee or, you know, Uniqlo now has these vending machines in airports. Oh, if yes. you just yeah. need an extra jacket or you ruined your T-shirt, you need a new T-shirt. But the biggest thing on my wish list is for more airports to use their airports the way they do in Asia Pacific, which is a huge branding opportunity for the city yes. and for the country. Yeah. And to build almost a mini city that sort of represents the best that that city has to offer. Yeah. So the New York Times, did you see that article they did recently on 27 hours in the Singapore airport? Yeah, Kenki is amazing. She did an it, yeah. airport vacation and yeah, spent yeah. 27 hours in that airport. And it's incredible because there's places where you can essentially hike through gardens, yeah. indoor wow. gardens and waterfalls. Well, I mean, there are even some small efforts on that dimension, which I think are amazing. So, for example, in Logan, they have a wonderful exhibition of historical innovation in the Boston area. And it's it's mm -hmm, so good. Mm -hmm. But my big requests would be, I have two big sets of them. So, I think first, you know, art and museums and galleries should be taking up places and should be experimenting in airports. So, for example, in Doha, they have some amazing art, mm -hmm. very large installation art. And then now they're doing some smaller installation art. And you could imagine so many opportunities for having art be incorporated into airports. And then the second set of opportunities that are missing right now are about kids and learning. You know, the way kids are treated in some of these airports, you know, there's like a kid port, which is <laughs> horrible. <laughs> but if you thought about creating learning experiences inside airports where you want to have your kid do something that's actually engaging and constructive. So for art and for learning, there just are, seems to be a host of opportunities inside airports that we should be doing a much, much better job on. All right, should we end with, it's hard to imagine, but if you had to spend time in any airport in the world, do you have a favorite or a least favorite? Oh, that's Singapore. That's Singapore airport. I'm a little torn between Munich and Dubai. I, I love about Munich, they have these nap cups. So these are little stations where it almost looks like a little room that you go into and there's internet and you can sort of use it as an office but I think much more importantly you can use it to sleep an hour or two. Oh, that's nice. And yeah. then I like about Dubai that they have local food delivery. The idea that at your gate you can get takeout from anywhere in the city basically I think is really fantastic. That's amazing. Anybody want to like hate on an airport before we go? Oh, LaGuardia. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's been under renovation for, what is it, 70 years now? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, when you look what they're doing now, they're essentially building a new airport around an existing airport that is operating at full capacity. And it's a total headache, but that this is even possible. I think that's pretty That's pretty. I astounding. agree, actually, Felix. It's actually completely astounding. And the new part of the Terminal B that's opened up is really nice. I think that's going to turn out to be a great project. This is project. a glass half full or a glass half empty story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. All I see yeah. is empty, empty, empty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Okay, so Google's two co-founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, announced they're stepping down from their operating roles at Google. Mm-hmm. I should note that they're remaining on the board, and importantly, they continue to control the company. But it's still a little bit of an end of an era. So my first question to both of you is, as you reflect back on the tenure of Page and Brin at Google slash Alphabet, what have they done right? What have they gotten wrong What do we know now in hindsight? So look, it's hard to overstate their contributions, which is just a way of saying the company they built over the last 20 plus years is absolutely phenomenal. And what they did well is they understood the power of AI and they disrupted and completely revolutionized the entire advertising industry and a lot of adjacent industries. I think what has been more complicated and problematic has been this last five years. I'm disappointed by their remaining governance structure. I wish in the last five years they had been more disciplined about capital allocation. And I worry that that set of traditions of the last five years will dwarf what they had accomplished, you know, prior to that, which is just absolutely stunning. So I guess that's my short version. What what do you think, Felix? Yeah, so I agree. The impact that Google has had on, you know, basically everyone's life is just amazing. Part of what's really appealing about the story is this idea of helping people with all this information that became available once the internet was a reality, I think was a really powerful starting point. And remember, even the advertising business in the beginning wasn't so much, oh my God, we don't have a business model, how are we going to make money? This was, oh, maybe advertising in a way is a search and information problem. So this turned out to be the heart of the business model, but in its motivation, it wasn't where they came from. The one other thing I would add is the extent to which they influenced how we began to think about what corporate culture could be like. Mm -hmm. They had a mantra that was, don't be evil, which we can debate now. But at the time, there was an innocence about that. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of an anti-corporate ethos behind that. And they built a campus where everybody rode multicolored bikes and scooters and the food was free and you could get massages. And they really were at the forefront of helping reinvent how we think about corporate culture. And that generosity, it was visible in everything. They had all these groups that were essentially research departments where it was totally unclear When is this ever going to result in a product that might be even useful for people? Yeah, you know, in fact, I would almost characterize it there as being 
two waves of tension beginning to develop at Google. The first is exactly the one that you mentioned, which is they really encourage an atmosphere where their scientists or engineers could spend a significant amount of their work time working on projects that Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily have any kind of financial payoff. And this kind of evolved into a place where on the one hand, they had this big machine that was Google Search and all of the associated properties. And then they began to have all of these more playful projects that eventually became these moonshot-like projects. And the first wave of tension, I think, began to emerge when there was a sense of, mm-hmm. like, at what point is it okay to run a company that's doing stuff that has very little chance of ever paying off? And that includes everything from driverless cars to life extension. I think I would be a little harsher than you on this in the following sense, which is, you know, at its worst, it kind of represents these founders using the corporate vehicle of Google and Alphabet for their personal curiosities. I think the bad part of Google is this kind of blurring of a founder's ambition with modern corporate structures. And that, I think, is running its course and already has run its course. So imagine, and I think this is going to be what has to happen going forward, there's a little bit more of an unbundling of it and letting a a thousand flowers bloom outside of Google and Alphabet as opposed to inside Google and Alphabet. And that, to me, I think is what is going to have to happen in the next decade to kind of rationalize what is happening here. So me here, if I can push back a little bit on this, I totally understand your point. If I have invested in a company and now much to my surprise, I learn that this company is also investing in crazy things. That seems super risky to me. That's not the Google story. If you bought into Google, you know, these two guys call the shots. They have lots of crazy ideas. And then you're making capital available. And presumably you're doing this knowing full well that these two guys, they have broad interest and they're going to waste a lot of money. Doesn't that change things? But that's all because of search. That's right. Investors have given them a lot of leeway. The question is really whether these big bets could have been better done with the resources of the founders outside of Google, as opposed to using the corporate apparatus. Page and Brin could have done this outside and in a much more disciplined way, as opposed to kind of doing it inside this large corporate structure, which is opaque. I think the single biggest advantage, what you cannot do outside the corporate structure, is the lure of talent, the recognition of talent. Well, but one sec, Felix. The whole point of venture capital and the entrepreneurial model is, in fact, the lure of talent, which is we typically think of venture capital and entrepreneurial financing as being important in part because we get founders who get big skin in the game who then end up being attracted to those settings. But not for these kinds of projects. Why not? If you say, I'm going to turn seawater into gasoline, who's going to give you money? Wait, are we now saying that there's not enough risk capital for moonshots in the VC world? My intuition is that it really matters how fundamental the research really is. If you're far down the development path and you know what the product is and you know what the issues are, there we can find an easy IP agreement. But early on, you often don't even know. You don't really know what is it that we're working on, what pieces of IP are valuable, which ones are not valuable. So the transactions cost of sorting out these kinds of things early on in the history of big bets, I think are just extraordinary. Look, I think there's a set of issues associated on the business side, and I think there's some really significant financial issues. They're sitting on 100 plus billion dollars of cash. 
They generated over the last five years something like $200 billion of cash flow. They've returned maybe 20 of it altogether. And it's not clear where the rest of it is going. And so I think the first thing that one has to do if you're Sundar Pichai mm -hmm. is figure out a new capital allocation strategy that is going to make some sense. And I think that's going to involve rationalizing that corporate structure so that whatever is fundamentally search in AI is what Google is. And what is not is gone and harvested off. I think we agree on the principles that you shouldn't do things inside the company if they can be better than outside. The part that strikes me as challenging about the conversation is we lack a counterfactual. It's not as though we can point to hundreds of other organizations, including the government, that are taking big bets every day, and they have this wonderful track record that is 18 times better than Google's. I mean, the moment you push things towards basic research, it's often going to take a very long time, and it might not lead to a very beneficial outcome. And so I just would not be so quick to dismiss that there's value to keeping things inside your organization. Yeah. I think I'm a little bit more where Felix is on this. If I were a young person and I had wild dreams of building a company, I could imagine having a dream that looked like I'm going to build a company that is at the forefront of technology that has some of the most sophisticated artificial intelligence in the world. And I'm going to find a way to monetize that. And I'm going to use the capabilities we build within that organization to do all kinds of crazy exploration. Not all of it is going to generate a financial return, but I'm hoping to generate enough return for my shareholders that they're going to enable me to not be the kind of traditional corporate entity that is expected to create efficiency in every piece of my business. I want to be a very different kind of organization. And I think for Larry Page and Sergey Brin, they have always struck me as two individuals who started out with that kind of idealism and almost this romantic image of the kind of company mm -hmm. they want to build. You know, I want to live in a world mm -hmm. where there are a couple of companies like that, that on the one hand are generating returns for shareholders and there's a part of the business that is run very rationally, but they're also engaged in some more interesting things, the outcomes of which are less predictable, particularly when the potential value creation is so huge, the way yeah. that Felix described. You know, there is a technology company that has generated mountains of cash flow over the last seven years and remains very innovative and enviable. And of course, that's Apple. <laughs> but not every company has to be Apple. You can be a different kind of interesting. But right? this is exactly where Apple was seven oh, years yeah. ago. And Apple gave us AirPods. What a moonshot. But this is exactly the arguments made about Apple seven years ago, which is they shouldn't distribute any cash because they should invest it all internally so that they can develop innovations. And what have they done instead? They've thrived for seven years and they've distributed $250, $300 billion. They've generated mountains of cash flow. And they're doing quite well. But you don't know the counterfactual. And we, don't, and we don't know the counterfactual with Google either. Absolutely. So what I'm saying is you could make an argument for why these are two really interesting corporate models. Yes. They represent two very different prototypes of how to be a really successful company. Fair enough. Fair enough. I think that's true. And I mean, that's right. it's also not quite right to say that there's no evidence. I mean, the competitive position of Waymo relative to all these other companies that are trying to figure out autonomous cars is pretty strong, right? And by the way, you could make the argument that instead of returning all of this cash to shareholders, I wish Apple had poured yeah. those resources into 
something like driverless cars, which could have enormous societal mm-hmm. benefits, right? But so, just to be clear, all that capital was redeployed at the economy. It got redeployed by investors. Manhattan real estate? Well, in all yeah. kinds of things. Okay, we're going around yeah. in circles. Okay, one of the things I did want to mention is that mm-hmm. we talk about this company as if it's at this grand inflection point with respect to what it does with all these moonshots. I actually think the much more acute problem they face has to do with more mundane things like regulation. Yeah, They're confronted with a whole set of labor issues. I think their corporate culture is showing some real signs of cracks. They've had sexual harassment cases that they have not handled well over the past few years. And so one of the things when I heard the news of these two co-founders stepping away, mm-hmm. it's an interesting time to step away. And maybe this is why they did it, because so many of these more acute problems are not product-related problems. They're not even really financial performance problems. Yeah. Instead, they're problems that have to do with regulation and mm-hmm. policy and labor issues. And this is maybe one of these areas where the early enthusiasm about the company and how the corporate culture was built, where that now presents a real challenge. I'm, yeah. This is just like a tiny little issue, but I think it's quite emblematic. When they came out with one of the new Nest Home products, they failed to mention both in advertising but also in the technical specifications that the product had a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) This is 2019. You're putting a product in people's homes. The most positive way to say is that they're hopelessly naive about privacy rights today. And so if I think about the kinds of things that really need fixing inside the company, this ability to understand how people feel about the collection of data, how people feel about when data is used to create new products and new services, that is so essential for Google. If you don't get that, you don't really understand the business you're in. And so to me, is probably priority number one. The one thing that I would worry about is, can you move this engineering culture closer to how the rest of humanity thinks about privacy and information. I do think in this space, they have a real imperative to demonstrate what corporate responsibility looks like in this domain. So that's what the next five years are going to look like, hopefully, for Google. Okay, thanks, guys. Okay, So I have been using Twitter in a more interactive way. And one of the things I did this week, because I have a bunch of travel coming up, is I asked people on Twitter for some recommendations for things to watch because I needed a new show. Oh, okay. And I got so many interesting things I've never heard of. Bletchley Circle? Oh, yeah. Bletchley Circle is fantastic. Is that good? Yeah. It's like a British... Unnatural? Don't know that one. And then I got this one that I actually have checked out. Mm-hmm. for an African 24-hour news network. And I said, if you watch bits of this, you get such a different perspective wow, on everything happening around. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. Having said that, none of those are my recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so my pick this week is a book called The Overstory by hmm. Richard Powers. Hmm. What's that about? <laughs> it's about trees. I like trees. First of all, it is the best nature writing I have read in so long. Mm -hmm. But I should warn readers, it is very long and it requires a little bit of stamina. (laughs) It's about trees in the literal sense. It's about trees, the forest, what we're doing to the planet. 
but it's also a novel. So it's trees as a metaphor, a metaphor for our lives and the lives of people we love and how things branch out and commingle. It's just so beautiful in places. And it incorporates this really fascinating group of characters. So my recommendation is that if you see this book, just try chapter one. And you will know after chapter one if it's for you or not. Because it's possible it's (laughs) not. Because it's a lot about trees. (laughs) So it's weird, but it's cool super cool. That sounds great. I, I like when they, sometimes when these writers, Jonathan Franzen did this with birds, they look at one piece of the environmental puzzle and they kind of see the whole yes. world through that. That's really powerful. And that's, that's sounds exactly great. what this is. Yeah. Felix, you're just looking at me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I heard an interview with him on NPR. Uh-oh. And I decided this is definitely a book I'm not going to look at. <laughs> Maybe no, the writing is really spectacular, but in that interview at least, he was not able to convey any sort of enthusiasm for trees. <laughs> he couldn't sell it, huh? <laughs> no, he couldn't. Well, this is why he's a writer instead of a speaker. Maybe his oh, speaking personality yes. is less alive than his that, writing personality. That might well be. Yeah, but yes. The Overstory by Richard Powers... It's really cool. <laughs> okay, Felix, what do you have? So, uh, Mihir, do you remember our enthusiastic conversation about stamp mixers? How could I forget? It was spectacular. <laughs> Let's do it again. So, I wanted to. <laughs> Please. Oh, no. Are we going to do I wanted to bring us. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, it's not about stamp mixers, it's about a kitchen okay. appliance. So, I've been using. Sous vide is a cooking technique that essentially cooks food in plastic bags in water. And one of the things that it does is it allows you to cook food at much lower temperatures than you would typically do. And so I've been experimenting with one of these appliances. It's called an ANOVA. There's a number of them that seem quite similar. They used to be super expensive because I think it was mostly for professional chefs. But now they're actually quite affordable. And I have to tell you, it will change the way you think about chicken. Wow. That's all I say at this point. <laughs> Wait, it'll change the way, the way you think about that it. That is exciting. And so, for instance, the realization that this is chicken that I'm going to eat cold with, say, some Caesar salad, or this is chicken that I'm going to eat warm with some sauce. Completely different temperature points. That's completely different eating experiences. I love this idea. I've wanted to try that. And I, in part, what's interesting to me about it, Felix, is it feels like part of this trend of what were historically tools only available to professionals are now becoming available to like home chefs. And it's fantastic, right? Because then you start to see some of their magic. (laughs) So the only comment I have about this is I have very mixed feelings about the invasion of equipment into the kitchen. So I started cooking about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of cooking that's super delicate and you're chopping and, you know, you're seasoning. And I love all of that. And then there's a part of cooking where you're getting your blender out or your stand mixer, or you're bringing your sous vide thing, or you're bringing that thing that has the cold ice and you're like steaming. And and I feel like it's like being in the garage and you're building a sofa or something. Like you're just you're like Bob the Builder and you've got all this equipment. And that I haven't quite gotten comfortable with that yeah. piece. I can completely understand where you come from. 
Yang Mi, this, this one feels different, I think, in two ways. Because the thing itself is super simple. There's nothing magical about it. And also, you can do something that you couldn't do before. One problem that I have with many of the gadgets is I can't really see how the dish is going to taste different. Here, I think, like, temperature just really matters fundamentally for how food will taste and the That's consistency great. of it. That's a great recommendation. Yeah, it's okay. really fun. Be here. So, um... Once in a while, there's some of these longer articles that just are transfixing. And so I came across one a couple of weeks ago that I think was just amazing. It's by a woman named Ellen Barry in the New York Times, and it's called The Jungle Prince of Delhi. And it was also made into a three-part episode of The Daily Podcast. So here's the short version. In the mid-1970s, a woman and two children showed up into the Delhi train station and said they were royalty from this small principality known as Awad. And they just camped out there because they said they had been displaced and that the government owed them some property. And they lived there for several years. And I had even heard about this when I was living in Delhi a long time ago. And, you know, by the mid-1970s, Indira Gandhi basically decided to buy them off and gave them a fort in the middle of Delhi. And they've been living there ever since. And the story is kind of lore. So this woman decided to investigate it, and she tells that story of what this family really is. And the story is just stunningly told. And so it's a story about, in some ways, it's a story about foreign journalists. But then it's also a story about partition and India and about this woman who was ripped from location to location because of partition, which happened, you know, 70 years ago now, and then the mental displacement that was associated with the partition. It is just a stunning story. And just to read the original story in the New York Times or to listen to the three-part podcast, which has a lot of her original recordings from all the reporting. Oh. So it's actually an incredible use of the podcast technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is just fantastic. So Jungle really? Prince of that Delhi. That sounds so interesting. It's a great read to understand India, to understand partition, and to understand journalism. It's just a spectacular read. Great. Okay. Those are our recommendations. And that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is After Hours from the HBR Podcast Network. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more.